Good evening. It's great to have the privilege of turning to the Scriptures together again this evening, isn't it? So let's turn to Exodus chapter 23. As you know, we're looking at the latter part of that chapter. Exodus um, chapter 23. And we're reading from verse 20 through to the end of the chapter at verse 33. And uh, the Lord God is speaking, and he says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice... And do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies, and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them, and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. And he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And we look to the Lord to add his blessing to what we've read. I wonder if you're the sort of person who, when you're going on a long journey, um, maybe for holidays at this time of year, or um, maybe uh, business travel, or going to visit friends or family, or whatever reason you have to, to go on a journey, whether you're the sort of person that likes to plan very carefully and go through every stage, you know, how am I going to get to the airport or the bus station or the train station, when do I need to leave, and, and what do I need to do, how do I find where I need to go um, when I get to the, the, the station or whatever, what about the other end, you know, how am I going to get to where I'm going to go, do you like to walk through every, every stage and, and know where you're, you're going? <coughs> well, in this passage, we've got the people of Israel, they're at Sinai, they've been given, as we've just seen over the past uh, couple of weeks, uh, God has given the people specific instructions for how they've to live as God's people. And God now turns to give them instructions for entering the land that he has promised them. And we're going we're to look at this passage tonight in two sections. 
We're going to look first of all at the fact that our God keeps his promises. Our God keeps his promises. And then we're going to see that we must live as his people. So if you want a a really catchy, not very wordy header, I can just lift it on the screen there. It's our God keeps his promises, so we must live as his people. What am I saying by that? I'm saying our God keeps his promises, and we are his people, and therefore we must live in a way that's consistent with that. We must live in a way that is pleasing to our God, that God who keeps his promises. So one of the things that really jumps out at us in this passage is that our God keeps his promises. You see how he starts off and he says, I'm going to send an angel before you, verse 20. I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, we've read of God sending an angel several times in Exodus already. And actually, if we piece this all together, we get a bit of a clue as to perhaps the identity of this angel. You know, back in chapter 14 of Exodus, do you remember when uh, the children of Israel, they had, they had come out from Egypt and they were, we were, just about, were just about to read of the crossing of the Red Sea and the people of Egypt, they, they are pursuing Pharaoh and his armies, they are pursuing the people, they're saying, what have we done? Letting them get away. And uh, then in Exodus 14 and verse 19 we read of this, the angel of God um, who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. Pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And we've actually read of the angel of the Lord before that, again, way back in Exodus chapter 3 when God speaks to Moses. This gives us quite a clue here, doesn't it? Because in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, the the burning bush. And then we read on and we realise that this one who is speaking to him is actually the Lord God himself. God calls to him out of the bush. And this one who is the angel of the, described as the angel of the Lord, is clearly identified as being God himself. And of course he tells, he calls Moses and he says, don't come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Fast forward to the end of this sort of uh, period of time as the uh, people have finally entered the promised land. And in Joshua chapter 5, as Joshua is leading the people into the promised land, in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13, Joshua is by Jericho and he lifts up his eyes and looks and behold a man is standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand and Joshua went to him and said to him are you for us or for our adversaries and he said no but I am the commander of the army of the Lord now I have come and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him what does my Lord say to his servant and the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy and Joshua did so and you can see a clear echo of what God said in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush uh, passage what God said to Moses. We see very similar language there. We see that this one identified as the commander of the army of the Lord accepts worship. And that pretty much tells us who he is. 
Uh, really what we're looking at here, the, the general consensus is, and I think putting this all together and putting the theme together of the angel of the Lord um, being, being sent to, to go before them, is that this one is actually, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. This one, the angel of the Lord, who's going to go before the people and go with them, is actually one of those pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. So God himself is going to go before his people. God himself is going to protect his people. God himself is going to uh, go before them and bring them to the place that he has prepared. I wonder if that sounds sort of strangely familiar, that concept of God himself going before his people and bringing them to the place that he's prepared. Because it reminds us really of the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? And it reminds us of what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples about how that uh, let not your hearts be troubled, John 14. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So, it's one of these things we're going to try and be as clear as possible tonight as we go through at not trying to misapply uh, things that were specifically and solely for the people of Israel. And we've seen examples of that after the, in the past couple of weeks, haven't we? Where we're, it's, it's been made very clear to us, uh, absolutely rightly, that uh, you know, a lot of the instructions and rules that the people of Israel were given were specifically for the people of Israel, uh, and, and we shouldn't try and misapply them to ourselves. But there are lessons for us to learn still. And uh, so we're going, to, we're going to learn those lessons as we're going to see this concept of God going before his people and bringing his people to the place that he has prepared and lessons for us. So what about this angel that God says he's going to, going, going to send? Um, this angel, um, verse 21 will not pardon their transgression. They have to be careful. We're going to look later at the instructions given to the people. But he will not pardon their transgression. They have not to rebel against him, for he will not pardon their transgression, for God's name is in him. And again, I think that's a clue as to the identity of this one. This one, only, only the Son of God can pardon transgressions, and only in him is the name of God. And so the angel's going to go before them, and the angel's going to bring them... Uh, to the land that is currently held by other people. And we've given quite a list of those different uh, groups of people. And I've put up a map here just to... You know I love a good map, don't you? And here, here's a map here just to orientate you. Okay, we've got Galilee there at the top. We've got the River Jordan going down there. Okay. And uh, this, is, this is when I'm really looking forward to the days when we have a screen up there and I can, I, I can, I can see without going like this. Um, but basically we see lots of different groups of people. So there's, there's the Amorites. And the Amorites had territory there. And the Amorites had territory right down here. They were actually quite a, a numerous group of people and uh, in, in verse 23 um, you know, God says that uh, his angel is going to go before the people and bring them to the, the, the various groups of people, the Amorites, they were first mentioned back in Genesis chapter 10 they were descendants of Canaan who was descended from Ham and here's a thing if we think way back to when God gives his promise to Abram 
Think way back to then. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16. And uh, God promises to Abram that he's going to give him land and he's going to make of him a great nation. And uh, one of the groups that gets a mention there is the Amorites. He, he talk, he, he, the Lord says to Abram, if we pick it up in Genesis 15 and verse 13, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So this Amorite population, one of the, one of the sort of big populations uh, in Canaan, um, and they're going to be driven out eventually as an act of divine punishment because the wickedness is going to be so great. So that's the, that's the Amorites. Um, then we've got the, uh, the Hittites. Now the Hittites are down here. Okay. And the Hittites get mentioned. They're first mentioned in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 20. So again, when, when, when God is making his covenant with Abram, and uh, one of the groups is to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of, and he mentions various uh, peoples, including the Hittites there in verse uh, 20. Then there's the, the, the Perizzites, and the Perizzites are first mentioned um, way back in, uh, there's the Perizzites there, in, in chapter 13 of Genesis, when there was strife between Abram and Lot's herdsmen, and the Perizzites were, were dwelling in the land. And then there's the Canaanites, um, and the Canaanites we uh, see just kind of round there, okay. Um, you can come up and have a closer look later if you like. Um, so uh, the Canaanites uh, get mentioned back in Genesis chapter 12, when again, when, when, when the Lord is appearing to Abram. And he's saying to Abram, Genesis 12 and, and verse 6, to your offspring I will give this land. And at that time we read, the Canaanites were in the land. And then there's the Hivites, and uh, the Hivites are up there somewhere as well, just there. And uh, they're first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, descended from Canaan. The Jebusites, they're first mentioned in Genesis 10 and 16, descended from Canaan. What's the point in doing all that? I'm just trying to show off a bit of geography and a bit of history. No, there's a point to all this. God had made these promises to Abram a long time ago. He had said he was going to have a great many offspring. He had, uh, God had told Abram he was going to inherit that land hundreds of years have passed since the time that God made that promise, gave that promise to Abram, hundreds of years have passed had God forgotten was God just going to let that quietly slip, of course not never what we're going to see, and what we're going to see as we look forward, because we're going to later on um, have a little look at what happened later and we're going to see that God keeps his promises. And that's a very important thing for us to lay hold of. Now, we're, it's not land that's been promised to us. We're not told, oh, you're going to get a, you know, a certain portion of land. But God has made some great promises to us. Uh, Peter picks up on this, this, con- this concept of promises. You see... People like to mock these days, don't they? They like to mock the things that Christians believe. And there are certain things that maybe are more likely to come in for mockery. You know, if you say, oh, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth, you might be, you're probably going to be in for a bit of mockery from some people. We believe it. God said it and we believe it. And it's absolutely credible to believe it. 
But there's another thing that sometimes gets you mockery. It's when you say, well, I believe that Jesus Christ is coming back one day. And people will mock. Well, hey, Peter knew all about that. And he says this in Second Peter 3 and, 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 and uh, verse 8. As he talks about people mocking, he speaks earlier on about how there's going to scoffers saying, where's the promise of his coming? You know, things are all just going on as they always have done. And Peter says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so we can look to the past, and we can see that God keeps his promises he kept his promises as originally given to Abram. And hundreds of years later, he's speaking now in more detail about how he's going to fulfill those promises. And we're going, to, we're going to fast forward a little bit later on just to see how he did keep those promises. But God keeps his promises to us too. You know, all that God has said will happen, will happen. And that's important to lay hold of, isn't it? Because sometimes we, we do live in a world that's a very cynical world these days, don't we? We live in a world that likes to pour cold water on a belief in the Bible. You know, you, you can kind of believe something as long as you don't believe it too strongly, as long as it's not the Bible. But we can hold fast to the fact that our God keeps his promises. And all that God has said will happen, will happen. It was, it was true back then, and it's true now, and it will be true in the future. And for us, of course, we look to the Lord Jesus. We look for his return. We look, we look for the rapture. We look for his return to take us to be with himself. That's what we look for. God always keeps his promises. You know, sometimes you meet people in life and, and they, they like to talk a good game. They come up with great ideas and suddenly a great idea becomes oh, a plan. We're going to, I'm going to do such and such. You know, uh, you see this sometimes in the workplace, don't you? Yeah, here's, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll do this and we'll do that. I'll do this for you. And so on. You think, oh, that's great. And, and then, you know, a time goes by and you think, oh, it's gone a bit quiet about that. And oh, maybe, maybe they'll get in touch about it soon. And uh, then a bit, bit longer goes past and eventually you say, I oh, remember that, that thing you said you were going to do, that idea you had, something you were going to do. And say, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's a good idea. No, I don't think we'll do that. And, and, and they try and roll back on, the, on, on, on their promise or on their word. But God will never do that. God is trustworthy and God will always do what he says he will do. And then he goes on and he says, I'm going to bless you. He says, and again, this is specifically, and we'll come to the context of this just in a wee minute, specifically to the people of Israel. And from verses 25 to 31, we've got a series of blessings that he, that he describes. And he says, look, I'm going to take sickness away from among you. And none are going to miscarry or be, or be barren. I'm going to fulfill the number of their days. I'm going to send my terror before them. I'm going to throw into confusion all the people against whom they shall come. Make the enemies turn their backs to them. Send hornets before them. I'll drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, Hittites. Drive them out little by little. I'm not going to drive them out all at once because if the land uh, gets, get, get, gets barren and uh, uh, you're not ready to, to inherit it, then uh, you're, you're, you're going to have problems. Um, but you know what? Eventually... Your border of your territory is going to be right from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, that's the Mediterranean, and right from the wilderness to the Euphrates. Now, 
So he gives a series of blessings for the people of people of Israel. And this is where it's particularly important that we do read this in context. You see, we've seen previously, in previous weeks, that uh, not every instruction given to the people of Israel is for us today. There is a lot that was very specific instruction for the people of Israel at that time. And many were specific instructions for them, and, if, and, and we'd get into a right mess if we tried to apply them to ourselves today. Uh, and, and likewise, not every promise is for us today. You see, if you look at Old Testament times, blessings, God's blessings, were often described in material terms. And you can see that here, can't you? And so land was, was one of God's blessings for the people of Israel. And freedom from sickness was one of, the, one of God's blessings. Long life was one of God's blessings. And sometimes we can, if we take that out of context and misunderstand it, we can sometimes get confused. Especially when things don't go the way we would like in our lives. And we have to realise that when we turn to the New Testament, God speaks primarily about spiritual blessings. You know, the start of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, for example, is, is very clear about that. And Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And what we see in the New Testament, what we see for us, is that God's blessings for us are primarily spiritual blessings. Oh, we, we enjoy material blessings along the way, but God's blessings primarily for us are spiritual blessings. And it's important for us to, 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 to get hold of that. He's predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We've got redemption through his blood. We've got the forgiveness of our trespasses. We've got grace lavished upon us. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. And we've got to grasp that. Otherwise we're going to get very confused. And otherwise we're going to get very confused, particularly when life gets tough. And if we try to make sense of that in terms of, where does that leave me in terms of God's blessings? And we turn to the word of God and we see it in its proper context and we see that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In who? In Christ Jesus. So, God tells his people what he's going to do. They're going to get land. 
the, the, the current occupants of the land, all the people that were looked at, they're going to be driven out. God's going to drive them out. And then they have to go in and they have to take the land and they have to leave nothing. They're not to try and strike deals. We'll come to that in a wee minute, actually, um, with, with the people in the land. And they have to move in. So what actually happened? Well, here's what actually happened. There's, there's your map there, okay? There's what actually happened. God did what he said he would do. We'll come to what the people did in a little while, okay? So just hold that thought. But God did what he said he would do. Um, So in Joshua 24, we see a a summary of of, of what happened from verses 8 to verse 13. And uh, we read there, Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan, They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. Leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Recognize some of those names from before. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent... The hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land in which you had not laboured, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. And God did exactly what he said he would do. Now, it, it actually did take Joshua and his army several years, about seven years, to conquer the land. And then there was a bit of a mopping up operation. And actually, we really, to, to see the full fulfilment of the geographical extent that God said to, uh, to, to Israel that he would give them, we would actually have to go right down to the time of, of, of David and Solomon. And we read in 1 Kings 4 and 21, for example... And here we see it. I'm just going to show you this, just so you can see that God literally did what he said he would do. And in 1 Kings 4 and 21, here's what we read. The days of Solomon we're at now. Solomon ruled over all the the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. God always does what he says he will do. We've got God who always keeps his promises to his people. And now he's going to tell his people how they must live. They are his people. How does he expect his people to live? So we've learned that our God keeps his promises. Now we're going to learn that we must live as his people. We are his people. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are one of his people. How must we live as his people? Well, God says back in our passages in Exodus. Sorry, we've jumped around a little bit tonight, haven't we? God says, do you know what? They must, verse 21, they must pay careful attention to the angel. They must obey his voice. They must not rebel against him. And the people are told, if you carefully, verse 22, obey his voice and do all that I say Then God says, I'll be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. God places enormous value on obedience. That's what we see here, isn't it? You see it time and time again. Do you know what I did yesterday? I put this whole passage into one of these little things in the computer that that creates a word cloud. It lets you see what words jump out as being the sort of prominent features here. 
And one of the things that you can see is that obey is a key theme. You can see it probably just from reading it, can't you? You probably don't need fancy software on the, on the computer. And the word cloud was a little bit too messy. I was, I was thinking of projecting it, but it was a little bit too messy. So I decided I would, I would leave that. But you can see that obedience, doing what he says, that is immensely important. Do you remember Saul? Do you remember Saul in the days of Samuel, First Samuel 15? Saul learned a very important lesson. Saul thought that partial obedience was okay. And Samuel had to come and challenge Saul. First Samuel 15. Verse 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. To obey is better than sacrifice. God wants his people's obedience. Oh, you might say, well, uh, I thought you said we had to look at all this in context. And let's just check this is applicable to us. Does God still want our obedience today? John 14, verse 15. Here's what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's it, isn't it? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. God wants our obedience. Let's be clear. Obeying God's word, that's not legalism. You know, I once had somebody try to tell me that, uh, this was many, I was was still at uni in in these days, a few years ago now, and a chap who was a Christian said, uh, you know, I remember him saying to to a group of us, you're saying Christians should pray? Oh, that's legalism, you're just making rules. Of course the Bible tells us Christians should pray. That's not legalism, that's just obedience. Legalism is when we start adding things that haven't in the Bible and saying you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do that. And that's your way to, to God. Obeying God's word, that's just obedience. And that's a given. That's what we must do. So God wants our obedience. So what have the people not to do? They're told what they're not to do then in verse 24. They're told they're not to bow down to the gods of the people that are in the land, the people that are being overthrown. You're not down, you'll not bow down to their gods. You know, he's already said very clearly in Exodus 20, we heard from it from Paul a couple of weeks ago, about how that they've been told very clearly, you shall have no other gods before me. They're not to bow down to the, these false gods, these gods that the people of the land uh, followed. So not to bow down to those, those gods, they're not to serve them, they're not to do as the people of those lands do. Verse 24. In fact, what they're to do, verse 24, is they're to utterly overthrow the people in those lands. They're to break their pillars in pieces. Even anything that was used in the worship of these false gods, destroy it. Break it in pieces. Leave absolutely nothing there. And serve the Lord, verse 25, your God. Serve the Lord your God. Don't make any covenant, verse 32, with the people in the lands. And they are gods. Don't let them dwell in your land. Or they'll make you sin against me, God says. For if you serve their gods, it'll surely be a snare to you. You've got to serve God, the people are being told, and him only. 
Serve him wholeheartedly. Serve him single-heartedly. Don't bow down to these other gods. Well, we fast forward to the New Testament. What did the Lord Jesus say the great commandment is? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So there's what the Lord Jesus told us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Do you know what? The world is full of other gods. Most of them aren't like the gods in the lands that the people were the people of Israel were moving into. Most of them aren't bits of stone or wood or metal or whatever. But the world is full of things that they're trying to put in the place that God should have. And other things that are given the place that should only belong to God. And there's the difficulty, isn't it? There's danger for us. You know, other things can start vying for our attention and our affections. And we mustn't bow down to anything or anyone except the true God of heaven. He has to have our heart. And he has to have it completely. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You see, we are in the world. We've not been taken out of the world yet. We're in the world. And all around us are other gods, if you like. Things that people are putting in the the place that, that, that should only belong to God. But we've been placed in that world and we've not been taken out of it. And here's something lovely. Do you know that before the Lord Jesus went to the cross, he prayed for us? He prayed and he said, I'm not just praying for my followers right at that moment, but I'm I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their word. John 17, 15, he says, "I'm I'm not praying that they'll be taken out of the world, but that they'll be kept from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. The Lord Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what's the lesson for us? Now we are not told to do what Israel did. We are not told to start going around and destroying our neighbours and taking over their land, you'll please know, or destroying other places of worship. But we've been placed in a world that is increasingly overtly opposed to God. Do you know what we're told? We're told to shine as lights in the world. Philippians 2 and 15. So although we're in the world, and it's not, you know, we've not been taken out of the world yet, we're not of the world. The Lord Jesus said that as he was praying in John 17 verse 16. And so we're in the world, but we're different. We don't really belong to the world. We're not of the world. We're separate. We're different. Do you know, we should, we should stick out like sore thumbs in this world, shouldn't we? Some of that is about things that we don't do. Sometimes we immediately think on the things that we don't do. And there are things. And you know, if, see, if, if the scriptures say that we shouldn't do something, we must not do it. Okay? It's as clear as that. So some of it is about things we don't do. Some of it's about what we do do. And how we live. And the fact that, you know, we're marching to a different beat, if you like. We're, uh, 
We're living for for our Lord. And we belong to him. And here's the challenge for all of us. Is it obvious to those around you that you're a Christian? Can they tell by looking at your priorities? Can people tell by looking at your attitude? Can they tell by looking at what you do and what you don't do? Can they tell by listening to how you speak? Can they tell that you're a Christian? You know, we should stick out like sore thumbs. May it never be that we blend in to the extent that nobody can tell the difference. But we're in the world. We're not of the world. So, what happened to the people? What did the people actually do? I told you earlier what, what God actually did. God fulfilled his promise. God did exactly what he said he would do. Did the people do what they were told to do? This makes very solemn reading. We go to Judges. And we see in chapter 1 of Judges. Verse 19. The people of Judah. Judah couldn't drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Verse 21. The people of Benjamin didn't drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 27. Manasseh didn't drive out some of the inhabitants. Verse 29, Ephraim didn't drive out some of the Canaanites. Sebulun, verse 30, did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Asher, verses 31 to 32, didn't drive out some of the inhabitants. Naphtali, verse 33, same again. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. The angel of the Lord sums it up in chapter 2 of Judges, verses 1 to 5. Here's, Here's what the Lord says. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And it gets worse. I mean, you see the solemn cost of disobedience, don't you? They didn't obey. And there were, there were serious, serious consequences. Here's, here's a real shocking thing as well. Look at how quickly it escalated. Down to, down to verse 11 of Judges 2. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. It's a very solemn passage, isn't it? Do you know what we see? We see the the awful cost of a compromised life. That's what we see. 
we see the end consequence of partial obedience. Oh, they might have thought, we, we obeyed mainly on the whole. We just left some people that we just let stay where they were. And we just left some of these you know, pillars and uh, altars and so on. But remember, partial obedience isn't obedience at all. Partial obedience is disobedience. And it's really quite shocking how quickly it escalated. These people that God had brought out of Egypt, brought to the land, driven out the people, and they just thought, we'll just, you know, we'll not drive out all the people. We'll just, you know, we'll just, just, just this once. You, you can see that, have you ever been tempted to do that? Make a just this once exception. Whatever it is, oh, it won't matter, just this once. <clears throat> see how quickly just this once escalated to the point where they'd fallen into all-out idolatry and they were living as people who didn't know God. You know, they were, they were living as people that were worshipping the Baals and people that had abandoned God. You know, we've got to be very careful not even to have once-offs. Not even to have those little moments of compromise where we thought just this once it won't matter. Because it escalates. And it escalates. The Lord wants our obedience. He wants our heart. He wants our service. He wants us to be single-hearted. You know, I was reading again this afternoon a little bit of the, the life of Keith Green. Uh, so I'm sure many of you have heard of him. His, his wife Melody wrote uh, There is a Redeemer, which we, we often sing here. And Keith Green was one of these folks who, when he became a Christian, he was just totally out and out for the Lord. You can sort of sense in some of the things that he wrote, and he said that he was frustrated by a lot of those around him uh, and couldn't quite understand why they weren't as on fire as he was. And he was taken home to heaven at a very young age. Here's one of the songs he wrote. It's called Make My Life a Prayer to You. He says, Make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to. No empty words, no white lies, no token prayers, no compromise. I want to shine the light you gave. Through your son you sent to save us from ourselves and our despair. It comforts me to know you're really there. Well, really, if, if, there's a, if there's something we learn from this passage, it's that compromise isn't an option, isn't it? The Lord has been so good to us. He saved us. He keeps us. And he'll take us home. He will keep his promises. Right now we live in this world that's opposed to him. And he goes before us and he'll take us home. But what does he want from us? He wants our single-hearted obedience. He wants our heart. He wants us to love and serve him wholeheartedly. And he wants us to completely, 100%, obey him and serve him and him alone. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come face to face with your word, we see that it is a solemn thing to be one of your people. It is a, a solemn thing because we, you know we fail. So often, we fall short and we're consumed with regret 
And we thank you that you are a God who will never leave us. And you are a God who will always keep your promises. But we want to be faithful. We, we want to be faithful and not to look back with regrets on times that we've compromised. Times that we've thought just this once. Times that we've only been partially obedient. Not quite realising or not acknowledging that that is disobedience. Help us this week. We're still in this world that does not recognise you. You've placed us there and it touches our hearts that the Lord Jesus prayed for us. So help us, help every one of your people because you know the difficulties and the challenges that each one of your people face. Help us to obey you completely. To love you and you alone. And to serve you wholeheartedly. We thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises. And we trust in you. As we pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.